Hey, y'all. What up, y'all? And welcome to the Birth Squad podcast. If you've been riding with the squad. Hey, fam. And if you're new. Welcome to the squad. We're your hosts, Dr. Ijama Kwandu and Dr. Kamisha Thomas, two licensed obstetricians and gynecologists, as well as best friends. We use real stories to educate about pregnancy, birth experiences, reproductive health, and all things in between. And while we hope you love learning about our podcast, it is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider for your specific care. So to learn more about us and for more information, please visit our Instagram at the birth squad and our twitter at underscore the birth squad please keep in mind that the following episode may cover topics that could be triggering to some individuals listener discretion is advised meet dr samantha benjamin allen she's the next badass birth warrior who will share her story to help the squad navigate through the complex and inspiring journey of pregnancy labor birth, and motherhood. Yes, we are talking about bladder leaks, sex, and all things postpartum pelvic floor. During the interview, you may notice that there's some medical terms that are used, but don't worry, we got you. We have included definitions and explanations in the episode description section of the podcast. So please listen up and enjoy her story. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. So why don't we start by having you tell us about yourself and your family, Samantha? Sure. So I am a physician board certified in physical medicine. I am a wife and have two beautiful children, ages two and four right now. And um, just balancing all the things, work, motherhood, marriage, yeah family dynamics and all the all the good stuff that comes along with it <laughs> wow with two and four that's definitely a balance yeah. um so we were hoping you could kind of share with us your path to motherhood yes yeah, so I'll start with my daughter I first had I first planned that I was gonna have a vaginal delivery and I, I did everything you know I exercised up until the did and I was eating healthy. I had my my big container of water that I bring to work every day, trying to make sure I stayed hydrated. Um, but that plan went out the window. So the day before her due date, I went for my check-in and um my OBGYN was asking, you know, if I was feeling any contractions, you know, how things are going. And he was like, You look a little too comfortable at this stage in the game. Do you mind if I <laughs> put you on the monitor, see what's going on? So he put me on the monitor and he's like, I don't really like how the tracings are looking. They're not reassuring. So I think you should go in um, and get induced. And that's how that started. So what does Samantha mean by the tracing not looking well or reassuring? Well, when you reach your third trimester, there will be some times where we need to assess the baby and we will use something called a non-stress test. This is basically where we put some straps around you and put a Doppler on the baby's heart so that we can check the baby's heart rate. What we want to know are three things. What is the baseline of the baby's heart rate? If there are variations and if there are accelerations or decelerations. Accelerations are when the baby's heart rate goes up. This is a good thing because that means the baby is getting enough oxygen. A deceleration is when the baby's heart rate is going down. And sometimes that could be a sign that there may be an underlying problem going on. 
Exactly. And we may do this earlier for some women if you have a medical issue like high blood pressure, diabetes, or if you're over 40 years old. But almost everyone will have this assessment once you pass your due date. Obstetricians, we're like Goldilocks. We want the heart rate to be high, so 110 to 160, but not too high. We want the baby to be big, but not too big. And the same thing for your delivery timing. We don't want it to be too early or too late. So in the case of Samantha, her baby started showing some signs that it was time to deliver based on the heart rate. Many patients will reach a tipping point where the baby indicates that it's no longer quite content staying inside the womb, and therefore it might be time to be delivered. Now, Samantha is going to share her labor experience. Be advised that this could be triggering for those who have experienced labor or birth. We recognize and understand the significance of birth trauma. So I actually was supposed to work that day after my appointment. And I was like, oh, seriously, I'm supposed to be at work. And after round, and I'm just thinking about all this stuff I have to do. He's like, well, I mean, you can do that, but it's probably better that you just go to the hospital. So that's what I did. And um, I got induced and the labor was going okay. Then I got to seven centimeters and I wasn't progressing. So, and again, they were looking at the tracings and saying, you know, you're having a lot of decelerations and, you know, we don't think the baby's getting enough oxygen. So we are going to have to do a C-section. And I felt shattered when they said that because in my mind, I, I was just thinking like, oh, I feel like such a failure. This was not supposed to go this way. <laughs> so um, I said, can you give me 20 more minutes and see if anything changes? And then if nothing, we can do the C-section. They're like, okay, we'll give you 20 more minutes. But if you come <laughs> back in 20 minutes and nothing's changed, we have to take you back. And I said, okay. So how long at that point had you been in labor? Because you were already seven centimeters. How long had that process taken from you showing up to the hospital to that moment in time? I went in that day, maybe at like 1 p.m. And she was born at nine the next morning. And the C-section was over. She she was blue and there was no crying. And, you know, I'm kind of sedated. So I, I wasn't really fully present to like ask questions and things, but I knew something wasn't right. And, um, you know, they did blow by oxygen. Her APGAR scores were five. And, you know, the OBGYN was saying, you know, you made the right decision by letting us take you back because I don't know if we stayed any longer, how things would have gone because the cord was wrapped around her neck twice. So um, I'm thankful at the end of the day that, you know, she's healthy and she came around, but it was kind of traumatizing for me just because the expectation I went in with was, you know, completely different than what it ended up being. Um, so at the end of it all, I like cried the whole way home and I was just feeling very down about the whole thing because I really didn't want a C-section because I understand that C-section is a major surgery. Wow, that was a really tough experience that Samantha described. Now let's take a brief moment to unpack exactly what happened. Her daughter was showing signs of distress and Samantha cervix stopped dilating at seven centimeters. Remember, to have a vaginal delivery, you need to be dilated to 10 centimeters, and the baby has to descend into the pelvis. When Samantha delivered, they actually noticed that the cord was wrapped around the baby's neck. This actually happens quite often. But what does this actually mean? 
The umbilical cord is what actually connects the baby to the placenta, and this is what gives the baby blood and nutrients. Normally, during the pregnancy, the cord floats freely in the amniotic fluid in the womb. But sometimes the cord can actually get stuck in a position that reduces the blood flow and nutrients to the baby. Oftentimes, it can be self-relieved on its own. But sometimes, when it stays tangled, it can make it more difficult to deliver, or it can reduce the blood flow and the nutrients that the baby is getting. Unfortunately, this is not something that can be prevented or controlled, nor can it be seen on ultrasound. Additionally, Samantha mentioned her daughter's AFCOR score. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, it's basically your baby's first report card. It is a way for pediatricians to communicate how well the baby is doing. They will give the baby points for color, cry, their expression, muscle tone, and heart rate. If a baby has a lower score, then they may need to provide some assistance, like the oxygen she mentioned. Now let's hear what Samantha has to say about her next pregnancy and postpartum experience. You got pregnant again two years later. What were you trying to get out of that birth experience? Well, the second time around, my mindset was much better. Um, and I didn't really make out any detailed plans. I just said, Lord, let your will be done. And I just pray this baby comes out healthy without any complications. I did want to do a vaginal again, though. Um, so I did deliver vaginally. So it was a vaginal after a C-section, which is also very challenging because there's the risk of uterine rupture, which is what my OB-GYN was apprehensive about. And because it was COVID and the numbers were so high at the hospital I was supposed to deliver at, I actually ended up calling one of my old um, obstetricians from when I was in residency and asked her if she'd mind taking me because things were a lot safer at the hospital she was working in. And I trusted her because, um, you know, I had a history with her and she she said, sure. So she was willing um, to let me wait until my actual due date, because where I was going before they were going to take me for a C-section the week before the baby was due because of the measure, how the baby was measuring in terms of size. And they, you know, they said if the baby's too big and you try to do a vaginal, it might be too stressful. So let's unpack this because this is a really hot topic. When someone has had a C-section, they can consider trying for a vaginal delivery in the future, but it depends on the type of incision that was made and the reason for the C-section in the first place. This is called a trial of labor after C-section or TOLAC for short. When someone has successfully had a vaginal delivery after having had a C-section in the past, this is called a vaginal birth after C-section, or VBAC for short. There are many factors that go into who will be successful. And believe it or not, there are VBAC calculators that were created to help us cancel patients based on their unique history. But why do OBGYNs make such a big deal about a TOLAC? When you've had a C-section, this creates a scar on the muscle of your uterus. The scar tissue is never going to be as strong as tissue that's never had an incision on it. So imagine that if you have a weak area of your uterus and then you have a contraction or put pressure on it, it could potentially open. This is called a uterine rupture and it is an obstetrical emergency. This is rare. It occurs in less than 1% of patients who have had a C-section depending on the type of incision that was made on your uterus. So please 
please ask your doctor if you are a candidate for a TOLAC or a VBAC after you deliver. Even though a uterine rupture is very rare, when it does happen, it can be quite traumatic for the patient and the providers alike. This is why we are always so cautious. And it's very important that you choose a hospital that actually allows for a trial of labor because there are very strict guidelines, such as having an anesthesiologist present in the hospital at all times in case of an emergency. Given this information, you can imagine why some providers might be more or less comfortable with offering TOLAX. This has created varying approaches to delivery. Some providers require you to go into labor spontaneously before your due date. Others say you have to have an epidural while you're in labor, while some may feel comfortable letting you deliver spontaneously without any type of pain control. The bottom line is, it's a conversation. And let's be honest, you want the provider you have chosen to practice or provide you the care that is within their skill and comfort level, because they are the ones taking care of you. So make sure you're on the same page. Now let's go back to Samantha and hear how her second delivery went. I ended up having a vaginal delivery and that was a 21 hour labor and I was pushing for about an hour and 21 minutes when again there was some concerns and she was like okay if he doesn't come out on this push I'm gonna have to take you back to the, I'm gonna have to take you to OR I was like oh, oh my god, god. <laughs> you're like no <laughs> so the last push was vacuum assisted and I had a grade two, borderline grade three, you know, tears like a starburst tear. Oh my um, gosh. And I lost a liter of blood. But again, I'm thankful because at the end of the day, he's okay. I'm okay. But I went through a very um, rough recovery in terms of healing and pain. Yeah. And, so tell uh, us about that. Tell us about, okay, you've had both, right? You're uh-huh. in the minority who's been able to experience both types of deliveries and both had some trauma attached to it. Yes. When you look at your experiences, you compare and contrast, what do you take away? Well, the recovery after the first one, which was the C-section was actually easier, which in my mind, I didn't believe that would be the case. So when I had the vaginal delivery and it was so much harder and, you know, so much more pain that lasted for so long afterwards, I was sometimes questioning, like, was it worth it going through all of that (laughs) to be going through this recovery now? Yeah, to be honest, that's how I I initially felt. It was challenging going through that recovery. Wow. So first, Samantha had a C-section for her first delivery. Then for her second one, she actually did have a TOLAC, and it was an operative vaginal delivery, also known as a vacuum-assisted delivery. Well, let's explain what exactly that is. What is an operative delivery? So basically, that's when we help pull the baby out. This can be done in one of two ways. The first way is with something called forceps. They're basically like big spoons that are used to cradle the baby's head and kind of help the baby come out um, as you're pushing. The second one is a vacuum. This is basically a suction cup that's placed on the baby's head. And in both of these methods, they're still doing all of the work and pushing as hard as they can. These tools are just helping by assisting to pull the baby out through the vaginal canal. And what are the risks or benefits of having an operative vaginal delivery? Well, usually it's done to help speed the delivery process. 
And this could be done because maybe the baby is under distress and showing some heart rate abnormalities, or the mother has been pushing for a really long time and might need some assistance to deliver. And the risks, so one, there may be some risks for baby, such as a scalp laceration, or for the mom, there could be a bigger tear. Okay, so now let's talk really briefly about this infamous tear, okay? I'm gonna break it down. First of all, let me just put it out there though, that most people do tear, okay? It's totally normal and part of the delivery process. But I'm gonna let Kamisha break this down for us. When we're talking about tearing, we're referring to your perineum. But what the heck is the perineum? This is a space that starts at the entrance of your vaginal canal and connects to your rectum or your anal canal, basically where you poop from. Technically, you can have a tear anywhere in your vagina, but usually we are talking about this place. Now, hang in there with me. There are four degrees of tears. A first degree is a small tear that does not include any muscle. A second degree, which is the most common, is a one that involves part of the muscles of your pelvic floor, which is what supports the system of the vagina. Okay. Now, Samantha will describe this more in a minute. A third degree means that part of your rectal muscle is involved. And a fourth degree, I'm sorry to say y'all, means that your tear extends all the way through to your rectum. Let's hear from Samantha again. I waited six, about eight weeks actually, before I started doing pelvic floor therapy to strengthen my pelvic floor muscles because they were very weak after that, um, all that tearing. Can you just tell us, for those who don't know, what like pelvic floor therapy is? Yes. So our, our pelvic floor is like the diaphragm of our pelvis that kind of holds everything together. So um, when, when the pelvic floor muscles are weak, you can struggle with incontinence because it's difficult to hold your bladder. And the same thing, you know, rectally, you can have difficulty holding your bowel because those muscles, you know, the sphincters around those areas are weakened and they are part of the trauma when there's tearing. Those are the areas that pelvic floor therapy addresses. And I know a lot of people hear about Kegels. So Kegels are a major part of pelvic floor therapy and making sure you're doing them correctly. So actually you can get like electromyography of your pelvic muscles to see which muscles are not activating fully um, or if there's any nerve damage that was sustained during labor and delivery. And they can target those muscles so that you can get the optimal chance of recovering. And I went through about three months of therapy and finally got to a place where I could run again, um, which I was really concerned that I wouldn't be able to do <laughs> after that whole ordeal. Um, but I am running again and I don't experience like any leaks when I have high impact. That was an initial issue. That's pretty much it in that felt. Pelvic floor therapies to help restore the function of the pelvic floor muscles, which essentially help us control our bowel and our bladder and um, kind of keep everything held up there. So what Samantha is talking about are the issues that arise from problems with your pelvic floor. This includes pain with intercourse, leaking urine when you cough, laugh, or sneeze, and then also prolapse, which is basically the vaginal tissue sagging outside of the vaginal entry. Having a vaginal delivery can put you at risk, but also just being pregnant can put you at risk of all of these things. 
Other things that put you at risk are having a chronic cough, being overweight, or ever having constipation. Basically, it's anything that increases your intra-abdominal pressure, which then subsequently weakens the pelvic floor. Now let's get back to Samantha's story. So now also being on this side, what were some other postpartum issues that you felt like you dealt with? Emotionally, I think, especially after the second one, it was very challenging for me. I was very down. Um, I think the impact of me not being able to exercise as early as most people can added to, you know, a depressed type of mood. Exercise for me really improves my mood. And I couldn't really do the things that I, I wanted to do. And then, you know, to add up upon that, you know, the stressors of dealing with a newborn and, you know, taking care of your other child or children, if, if that's your case. I don't know. I think I kind of isolated a little bit because I was just overwhelmed, which also didn't help. But if, if I could be honest, I think the, the mood changes, they're real and it can happen to anyone. And I definitely was, was feeling down. What Samantha describes is 100% true. Mood changes are real and they can happen to anyone. It's also important to recognize that everyone goes through the baby blues, which are mood changes in relation to your sudden drop in hormones after delivery. This will occur for a short period of time, around about seven to 14 days. But if you have feelings of sadness or depression that last longer, please reach out to your provider so you can get help. We will provide some links on how to find a therapist based on your insurance below. Now let's get back to the last part of our story. Any resources that you, you utilize to kind of help you with that? Yeah, actually, um, when he was five months, I actually reached out to get counseling and that was helpful. So if anyone, you know, feels like they're having postpartum blues or just not themselves after having a child that is not abnormal and, you know, don't feel ashamed to seek help um, because it really helped me more so in balancing and prioritizing things. So my schedule was not so overwhelming and then you're not, you're not getting sleep. So it's, there's a lot of factors in there that can affect your mood and, you know, it's, you, you can be easily agitated and it's hard to, it's harder to cope. You're tending to a whole nother human being and that's a lot of work and they're, they're completely dependent on you. So I did reach out for counseling and that was helpful. Yeah. I mean, you talked about you know, you seeing someone who specializes in the public floor, seeing someone who specializes in mental health is just as important. So I want to circle back to the public floor because it's so important. And I want us to talk about other symptoms that you may have had from having public floor dys dysfunction. Dyspareunia or pain in the public area definitely is a major part of that. Um, so Part of my therapy is also targeting areas that were painful and, and doing like deep tissue massage to help work out the scar tissue so that that pain could dissipate because the tightening of the tissue contributes to the pain. So you work out that tissue with scar massage therapy, that really makes a difference. Um, and it, it's hard for you to do that on your own. So it's very, very helpful um, to get pelvic floor therapy if you feel like you've had a traumatic labor and delivery experience or things just aren't aren't right down there and you're feeling feeling like things are weak and you're not able to control your bowel and bladder as well 
or um, if you're doing certain activities that have some higher levels of impact that you used to be able to do and can no longer tolerate, you really want to try to get back that quality of life. So one major thing is not lifting heavy objects because that can actually contribute to prolapse even after you know, you've gone through your labor and delivery and seem like you're okay. You can actually get prolapse later if you lift something too heavy. So as I told you, I already had another child and I was lifting, <laughs> lifting yeah. my child lifting out of your playpen and doing it incorrectly. I should know better, but it's like, you have so many things on your mind. Proper body mechanics sometimes is the last thing <laughs> you think of. So I would lift her out of the playpen instead of just opening it so I can squat you know, bend down and lift from my knees instead of, you know, bending my back. Um, so that made things a little harder as well. And, and can you just tell people what prolapse is who might not know what that what Oh, that okay. Means? So prolapse is when um, an organ or tissue protrudes from its, its cavity or, or basically where it belongs. So you can have prolapse of anything really, but like uterine prolapse is basically if your uter- uterus starts to come out of the vagina. Um, so it can be partial or it can be full. So I did have some, because of the vacuum and, and the suction and the pulling, I did have some drop down of my uterus. Thank God it didn't fall out, but it felt like that immediately after as I was recovering, you know, it was just like this boggy weight. Like I could feel it just there when I would walk. Um, and then. I, I noticed after I had lifted my daughter out of the playpen that that felt worse. And I knew I did something when I did that, which is kind of what triggered me to go, go to the pelvic floor there. I went back actually, after I had taken a break, after I did that, I went back. So I was like, I did something. Um, so it, it improved though. And I'm not really, I'm not having that issue anymore, but the important thing is not doing um, like sit-ups. A lot of, a lot of people think doing crunches and those type of things are what you want to do to try to, you want to get your abs back and you, you want to get everything tight and everybody's focused on their abs. But if you neglect your pelvic floor and you're only worried about your abs, you're just going to make everything worse because you're increasing your abdominal pressure, which is putting more pressure on your pelvis and pushing things down. So in the beginning, most of my exercises were just on my back. So like um, dead bugs, or doing bridges. So dead bugs are basically laying on your back. So you have your knees up and your arms straight up and you're bringing one leg down at a time with the opposite arm and you're alternating. And then the bridges are, you know, you're laying on your back, your knees are bent and then you lift your hips up off the ground. But I, I, in my pelvic floor therapy, I was trained to incorporate the Kegel exercise with each contraction to train my body to activate my pelvic floor when I'm exercising, because a lot of times we don't do that, but that made a huge difference. And then when I progressed to a point where I could do squats again, every squat was a, was a Kegel, you know, before I went down. So you, you, you would activate those muscles and then go down for the squat and then relax. So that helped to train me to keep those muscles functioning while I'm contracting. So I don't induce more pressure to push things out when I'm trying to keep them in, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so how did they teach you? Like when, what's the, the, the way they described doing a key? Yeah. Yeah. That's hard to understand. Yeah. So holding, holding your pee, I think is the easiest way 
to understand what it means to do a Kegel. So when you're trying to hold your urine, you're using the same muscles that you're contracting when you're directed to do a Kegel exercise. So that's what you imagine yourself doing every time you do that contraction and relax it. And I alternated with, you know, rapid contractions. So squeeze, release, squeeze, release, squeeze, release, and then longer holds as I progress, like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. Um, because initially it's hard to really hold it long because if you've had a traumatic labor and delivery, it, it is very weak and you don't want to over fatigue the muscle and you want it to be an effective contraction. So, you know, starting off with the short contractions are best because you can get the most power with the short and the longer you try to hold it, if it's already weak, you're just going to, you know, fatigue the muscle. So just holding your, holding your pee is the best way to describe doing a Kegel exercise. Just activate the muscles you want to use when you're trying to hold that pee back. Because you mentioned pain with intercourse. Uh, did they give any tips or tricks for how to manage that as well? Position really was the key with that and just being vocal about what you need to be comfortable because you can still have some pain after traumatic labor and delivery, even after everything's healed because of the scar tissue that I mentioned. So it doesn't mean that you can't have intercourse. Um, you just have to find positions and, you know, direct your partner um, what angles to use not to aggravate the area that's still sensitive. But eventually that all went away. So anybody who's going through that, don't be discouraged. It can get better. But, you know, I preach probably sweat therapy for anybody who's experiencing just any offness after labor and delivery, um, because I don't think we talk about it. You know, a lot of people just don't talk about the quote unquote ugly parts of the labor and delivery experience and the postpartum experience. So I think we go into it with this glorified fantasy of what it's going to be like and everything's just going to be great. And yes, it's always a great thing to, to have a healthy baby and, you know, make it out on the other side because labor and delivery can also be um, very risky. So it's, it's nice that you can come out on the other side and you and baby are still, you know, present, but there is there a lot of times there are a lot of challenges afterwards that people don't talk about. So I think it's great that you ladies are doing this podcast and it will, it will surely will help a lot of people not feel alone or, you know, crazy about the things that they're feeling or going through afterwards. I mean, a hundred percent. And, and I was going to ask you as you were talking, is that what you tell your friends? Like, what is the piece of advice that you give your friends about? Well, I mean, people can do what they want to do, but I do tell them don't, spend a lot of energy and time trying to come up with a birth plan because things can go completely different. And I think when you make a plan that's very specific and things don't go the way that you expect, it adds a lot more suffering and unnecessary suffering to your experience because the disappointment, um, especially if you're kind of like an overachiever perfectionist type of personality, that disappointment can be, you know, major in terms of kind of delaying your process to recovery that makes sense so mm -hmm. I I say it's nice to to want something but don't go into it thinking that's the only way it's going to happen or it has to happen rather go into mm -hmm. it saying you know as long as the people who I'm entrusting my labor and delivery experience and care to know what I want and express to me the 
risk that could be associated with what I want and explain what the alternatives might be if things aren't going the direction that would result in your desire, you know, coming to fruition, that's fine. Go in, go into it with that mindset, you know, talk about what you want, but also be open to what they have to say about why what you want could potentially be a problem or potential complications could arise. Kind of just be open and questioning so that you're not as surprised if something doesn't happen the way that you intended it or you wanted it to. That's amazing. Like, that's perfect. That's exactly what we tell our patients as well. Um, Is there anything else that you wanted to share? I just want everyone to know that you are not alone. And if you feel like you are struggling, reach out for help. Um, Thankfully, I had my mom helping. So I want to give credit there. She's awesome. And my husband was helpful as well. But there, there are just some things you go through after you have a child that can be overwhelming, can be stressful. Um, and if you're a working mother, don't feel like you have to go back to work too soon. <laughs> um, oh, come on, t- talk some yes. more about this. <laughs> uh, because so I, I basically did six weeks with the first one and I did 10 with my second child. But if you could do three months, don't feel bad about it. I know circumstances are different for everyone and, and everybody's job might not offer the same benefits in terms of time, but voice your needs and don't, don't shy away from doing that because you feel like your answer will be no. It's not going to hurt to ask, but don't put yourself in a position to take less than what you feel like you really need because you feel worried about what somebody's going to think or say. You know, your health is most important. And you want to be well for both yourself and your child and all the things that you need to show up for, including work. And going back too soon can actually be a detriment in the long run. Amazing. Thank you so much. So where can the listeners uh, find you or get in touch with you? Um, You can actually follow my wellness journey on Instagram at Freedom Wellness Doc. That's on Instagram. And also on Facebook at Freedom Wellness Physiatry. And my website is freedomwellnessphysiatry.com. And I do a lot of um, wellness, uh, nutrition incorporated into my practice. Any condition that's left people severely debilitated um, and there's a gap between that experience and recovery for those who can't really get out to a doctor and at home. I do house calls too. I see Maryland, Virginia area. So if you're in that area, you can link me on any of those platforms. Nice. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing. I mean, I can't even count the number of pearls you shared with everyone. Thanks for having me. Keep doing the great work you ladies are doing. It's been a pleasure. Well, y'all, thank you for listening to the Birth Squad. We're going to continue sharing stories from more badass birth warriors because at the end of the day, you are the experts. Remember as you navigate your healthcare journey that you are beautiful, you are brilliant, and you are brave. We at The Birth Squad would love to hear more from you. Tell us what topics you'd want to hear more about. Hit us up on Instagram at The Birth Squad and on Twitter at underscore The Birth Squad. Most important, make sure to share this episode with your squad. Until next time, I'm Dr. Ijama Okwandu. 
And I'm Dr. Kamisha Thomas. Peace, love, and solidarity from the Verse Squad. Check out the podcast description for the explanations on some of the terms that were mentioned in the podcast. There, you can also find information about Dr. Samantha Benjamin Allen and the medical services that she provides.